1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
0: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Sunny skies, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the state of Georgia's equine industry during this pandemic.
3: They're either selling their horses. I actually was on the phone yesterday. A couple people called me wanting to give their horses away. And that's a sad situation because when that starts happening, they end up in bad homes.
2: But first, the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 1130 a.m. today, there are 29,560 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,258. And there are 5,574 hospitalized. And that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health again as of 11:30 a.m. today. Meanwhile Georgia will receive more than 400 million dollars in federal coronavirus aid. Now it comes from the Education Stabilization Fund Program Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief and that's all part of the Federal CARES Act. The State Board of Education voted yesterday to accept the funding. Schools can spend the money for resources like computers, mental health services, and meals for students. State officials will distribute the money after approving district spending plans. State Superintendent Richard Woods says the state will keep $46 million for future needs. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Recent data shows that more than 30 million Americans throughout the United States have filed for unemployment benefits. Of course, we know the reason why. Now, here in Georgia, the State Department of Labor has processed more than 1.3 million claims since mid-March. However, some Georgia workers are returning to work because some businesses, well, they're beginning to reopen. But there are many questions and concerns as to what the workplace environment should now look like in terms of safety. Well, joining me now to talk about all of this is Amanda Farahani. Amanda is the managing partner at the employment law firm, Barrett and Farahani. Amanda, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose, for having me on the show. Let me begin asking you this. How many employees do you all have? We have 27 employees. And have you all made a decision when possibly you return to your building, your workplace?
1: Yeah, so we've been working remotely since March 10th. Um, My goal is to make sure that the safety of our people are top and foremost. And so we're going back into the offices June 1st, but that is not a hard and fast rule. We're going to see what happens as time gets closer to that as well.
2: What factors will you consider in terms of making that decision? Will you follow maybe what the CDC says, or as a lot of people have been saying on this program, we're going to follow the science in terms of making a decision?
1: It is. It's going to be what the science says, and it's going to be whether the um, rate is increasing of the daily deaths um, or whether it's decreasing, and whether we're going to be able to do it in a way that keeps everyone safe. Um, We have purchased ppb and a um, kit of the types of things that everyone's going to need just to be able to be in the office safely too for each of our employees as they come back
2: and let me ask you this amanda if you had an employee who said you know i just don't feel safe right now would you honor that i would yes
1: employers aren't going to be required to if it means that they can't work but for our firm people are able to work from their home because we are paperless and cloud-based and so people do not have to come into the office in order to be able to get their work done.
2: Which leads me to this next question. How busy is the firm just fielding calls regarding workplace safety and employee rights?
1: Well, um, we get a lot of calls. We've, we got a lot of calls before and we're still getting a lot of calls now. We did see a dip in calls for a little bit, um, but they're they're picking back up, of course, with all the people that have lost their jobs and now having to go back to work, there's a lot of people with a lot of questions.
2: Well, let's dig into that a little bit further. What are those top questions or concerns that you're hearing? And these are from em- employees, I take it.
1: From employees, yeah. We, we represent employees in, um, in their situations with their employers. So, uh, you know, one of the biggest ones we're hearing right now is whether, just like you asked, do I have to go back to work? And, and the answer to that, is, like any lawyer would say, it depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. So for those people who are at risk or high risk or sick or, or who have children at home that they have to take care of, those people are entitled to stay out of work and continue to get it paid under the paid sick leave policies that been put in place now. Um, and that could be anywhere from two weeks to 12 weeks, depending on the situation. Then there are those people who, you know, on the other side of it, um, what you have are people who are just worried to go back to work, are being invited to come back to work and are saying, well, I'm not going to come in, I'm going to stay on unemployment. And for those people, that's not an option. If it's just a generalized fear like the rest of the country might have, but there is no risk factors. there are no issues and their employers offering them work, they do have to go back to work.
2: Someone listening may say, well, Amanda, how do we assess the risk factors?
1: In this situation, what we have to do is take personal responsibility in the ways that we're being told we need to. We need to make sure we're social distancing. We need to make sure that we're wearing a mask when we go out. If our employer has set up a situation that allows for that to happen, they're sanitizing, they're taking the steps that the CDC has said they're supposed to, then unfortunately people are going to have to go back to work or they can stay home, but they're not going to be able to continue to stay on unemployment.
2: Speaking of which, Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler was on Closer Look last week. He answered several questions from our listeners. Uh, here's how he responded to a question about a person receiving unemployment and having some concerns about returning to work.
4: Uh, you need to talk to your employer and kind of work things out with them. Uh, and there's obviously those categories, again, uh, have to do with uh, if, if you are uh, that there are acceptable reasons that you don't have to go back. Uh, that are accepted that you will allow you to get unemployment. And that is, mm-hmm. if you've been told uh, that you are highly susceptible, um, or, or you have a, a immune uh, compromising type situation to whatever ongoing illness, whether that it be asthma, whatever. As um, long as you can prove that uh, through a physician that says that you know you do, do need to stay quarantined, then that's acceptable. Or if you're over 60 years of age, or if you live with somebody under those two categories, or if you have uh, kids that are school age. Uh, that you have no way to get them childcare right now. Uh, all that is acceptable to stay on unemployment.
2: Amanda, what do you make of what the commissioner said? Well, I would agree. Um, that is the new
1: rules that have been passed by Congress under the CARES Act that allows for the family first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the quarantine issues, the illness issues, you yourself needing to be quarantined or being with someone who is or having kids that you can't get childcare for because they're in school. And that's going to change soon. Really, the child care issue because that's only in place until the school would have been in session. So when schools are going to be out, that law is not going to protect employees anymore.
2: Now let me ask you this, because we know that Georgia is considered a right to work state, correct? Employment at will, yes. Employment at will. Let's define that because depending on when you ask, I've heard so many different. I've heard so <laughs> many definitions. Well, what does that really mean? You know, I've heard people say, "Well, they can fire you yes. if they don't like your shoelaces." I mean, come on, that's what we've heard. Let's yeah. let's give a correct definition of that for our listeners.
1: Yeah. So um, right, right to work means that you have the right to unionize, but employment at will means that you're employed at will, which is the means that your will or at their will, and what that translates to is you can quit for any reason or you can be fired for any reason, unless it's an illegal reason. And in Georgia, we have less illegal reasons than in any other state. Mm. So we look at the federal law to see what are the illegal reasons. And most of those are discrimination, or now we've got the new family first law um, and some new rights under the family medical leave.
2: Can an employer legally fire someone who refuses to return to work under these circumstances, as it relates to what the commissioner just mentioned, and what you just agreed saying that he was correct, can an employer still fire someone? Absolutely not. Okay. No. So if
1: someone is sick and says, I'm going to need to stay out because, you know, I'm sick or I'm a high risk or I'm with somebody who I'm taking care of who's sick or I've got children at home, they cannot be fired for that. And you know, that, those are the kinds of calls that we're getting now that we're able to tell them that we can help them moving forward because what their employer has done is illegal. Mm. And even if they're coming back and, you know, putting them into high risk, that's going to be another way that they're going to be held responsible because they need to make sure that they're protecting their employees.
2: If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Amanda Farahani. She's a managing partner at Barrett and Farahani, and we're talking about what you, employees and employers, should know about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it relates to employees coming back to work. Let's switch a little bit if we can, want to be fair. Let's talk about what employers should know in terms of making a decision if they are thinking about demanding that their employees come back to work. Well, i
1: employers need to, for the first part, make sure that what they're doing is keeping their employees safe. Because if their employees are at risk or they put them at risk or their employees end up getting sick, then there's potential liability against the employers for that. So the employers really need to be careful before they start forcing people to come back to work. And when they bring them back to work, they really need to look at social distancing, maybe shifts, identifying who can telework and allowing those people to telework and then making sure the employees know that it's not a mandate, but it's an option so that they can have
2: discussions around whether there's someone who needs to stay at home. Well, let me ask you this. Can someone legally use the family medical leave, the FMLA during the pandemic? Absolutely. Yes. So
1: the family first is the law that was passed for the pandemic and it also increased the rights under family medical leave so that you now are um, able to take that extended time, just space for childcare, And you don't have to be at an employer for a year, which is what you had to be under the FMLA, and the employer could be a small employer. And before it was only 50 employees or more um, was the employer required to give FMLA. So those, those options are now available. And really, childcare is one of the biggest ones that we're seeing as where the violations occur. Hmm. But an employer, they need to make sure their employee knows that they have that right, and that the employee knows that it's okay to come forward and say, I'm not going to be able to come back to work because I still have kids at home, and I don't have any child
2: care for them. Is OSHA, is that a good first step before you start telling your employer, I'm going to take you to court, I'm going to sue you?
1: Well, I think it's it's always a good first step to uh, tell your employer about your concerns. I wouldn't say a good first step is telling the employer you're going to sue them, <laughs> but OSHA is there to help with worker safety, and so they can come in and do an investigation. They might also be issuing some guidelines right now. Um, it doesn't protect an employer from from being fired, though, if they go to OSHA, um, mm-hmm. They don't have a private cause of action for that. The OSHA may pick that up, but, um, but that is an option. And the EEOC is also an option, which is going and complaining that you think you're being discriminated against. For example, I'm hearing employers who want to do things like keep all their older workers at home and mm-hmm. not bring them back to work. And, you know, it might be coming out of a good place, but that's still a legal discrimination because you can't, make a decision based on somebody's age. Or another employer might say, I'm going to bring back more productive people that I don't have to pay under the family first and who don't have children so they can come back to work. And that would be illegal as well. So so there's a lot of different things that an employer may end up doing in these situations
2: that really would violate people's rights. So Amanda, let's take this scenario. An employee really believes he or she has a legitimate, valid concern and The employer still is demanding they come back to work. Before we get into all the lawsuits and all that, what are you advising clients to really consider here uh, before filing a lawsuit? And obviously, given the way the courts are, it could be a while before something like that even gets heard or if it even gets accepted by the courts.
1: That's true. I mean, each person's situation is different. Um, So what we do is we tell them to call our firm. We, We have attorneys that talk to every person who calls. We don't charge for that. And so we'll advise them on their particular situation on how to best navigate it, because sometimes it's as simple as saying the right thing to your employer to make sure that the employer understands what they need to be doing. And sometimes it's documenting it, because it doesn't matter if the employer knows what the right thing is, they're still going to violate it. So, you know, it's it's going to be difficult for people, because obviously we've got so many people that are out of work that... Sometimes people may decide to take a risk themselves that they shouldn't take, but because they're fearing that they won't have a job in the future.
2: Well, here's another scenario. An employee agrees to come back. Perhaps they contract the virus. Could they have some legal grounds in the future to sue, saying, you know, I came back to work. I was fine before I came back to work, and then all of a sudden I came back to work, and now I have the virus. Legally, where It's they- possible. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's possible. So I mean it could be a workers' comp claim, but depending on the work or the employer's negligence, it could be something beyond that. And you know, the greater fear there is, is the guilt that you might have if you went into the workplace with it and ended up affecting other people who died.
2: Do you suggest that employers take temperatures, monitor people for symptoms? Well, the EOC has changed their guidelines to allow for that. Uh,
1: what I think employers need to do is just see what the CDC guidelines are and make sure that they're following them. They seem to change periodically, and, and so as we learn more, I think it's going to be important for employers to, to take the right steps.
2: Amanda, as we wrap up, you of all people know that in employment law can be very difficult to maneuver, but as it relates to yeah. policy and legislation, through your lens, what do you hope comes out of this in terms of what needs to change as it relates around em, em, employee rights and even for the rights of employers? Oh, Rose, I could give you an entire hour on that. Well, we can bring you back. Um, in Georgia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, in Georgia in particular, we, we need employment rights. We do not have rights for employees at all. Um, And one of the greatest things I think we need right now is whistleblower protection uh, so that people can come forward and talk about things that are being done illegally and have protection. Uh, We don't have any sexual harassment laws in Georgia. I was working on a bill this past session that, um, of course, is, is dead at this point. And also one for elder abuse and retaliation for workers who are coming forward about problems in elder abuse homes, mm. which is so important right now, given the, um, you know, it's given what's happening in the in the elder homes. So that's just a start. And then, of course, we need greater protection in Congress as well. But if, if we saw it in Georgia,
2: I'd be happy. Mm. Amanda Farahani, Managing Partner at Barrett & Farahani an employment law firm. And a reminder, programming note, if you have questions, Amanda is an expert, but we also suggest that you seek your own legal representation for questions or concerns you may have. Don't tell folks, don't tell your employer. Rose Scott said, I don't have to come back to work. Um, But Amanda, thank you for taking the time. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Good information.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Georgia's annual horse industry generates a galloping $2.5 billion. That's the impact on the state's economy. And like many of the state's agricultural sectors, the equine industry has taken a huge financial hit, and not in a good way due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That includes horse shows that have been canceled, and stables are losing revenue in light of the social distancing guidelines. But now that the state's stay-at-home order has expired, what does this mean for Georgia's equine industry moving forward? Well, joining me now to discuss this are the owners of two Georgia-based equestrian centers. We have Shannon Thompson, owner and instructor at Peace of Heaven Farm in Jackson County, Georgia, and Lynn Marks, owner of the Ellenwood Equestrian Center. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. First of all, let me ask, and I'll start with you, Shannon, how you all are doing out there, and of course, how listeners love animals, how how all the animals are doing as well.
3: The animals are doing well. They started with this quarantine kind of enjoying some time off, um, but now they're bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, But they're doing well. They're enjoying life. They're fat and happy, just a little bit bored.
2: Uh, Lynn, what about you? Yes,
5: I concur with Shannon. I uh, joked that my horses had no idea why they were on such a prolonged vacation. <laughs> what is going on? We're not getting ridden. But they're doing fine. I mean, the horses have to be our first priority in terms of um, getting, you know keeping them fed and healthy. So they're all doing fine.
2: Well, then let me ask you, how many employees do you have out there at the Ellenwood Equestrian Center?
5: so we operate as a family-run business i don't have actual employees mm-hmm. my two children who are young adults and myself do all the actual physical work and we have a very large uh, program of uh, young ladies who are our helpers it's a mentoring program um they help us on days of school and uh, the weekends unfortunately due to the pandemic we can't have any of them out there out here so mm-hmm. they're missing out we're missing out on help so we're actually working are literally working much harder than ever um, during these
2: days. And Shannon, what about you? How many employees or is it a family owned business as well?
3: It It is. It's myself and my college age daughter that do the majority of the lessons and the work. And then I have one other additional employee that helps me feed the animals and care for the animals. And um, I've worked hard trying to not have to let her go during this time. And so far we've been able to keep her on, but it hasn't been, hasn't been easy. But um, same thing that Lynn said, we've, it's given us a lot more work because we don't have the mentorship program in place right now. We don't have the younger um, adults able to come out and do the work that they would normally do. So we're having to all pick up the slack and do even more work. So we may not be teaching lessons, but we're actually working a lot harder than we would otherwise.
2: Shannon, the lessons, is that a big part of your revenue income?
3: That's the majority of my revenue because I'm not really a boarding facility. I am mostly a lesson facility. So um, that has been, that is the majority of our income. Yes.
2: Shannon, how much do you estimate you, you all have, I hate using this word, but how much do you estimate you all have lost?
3: We have lost well over $30,000.
2: Lynn, what about you all? What's the majority of your income stream and, and how much have you all lost? So we're a lesson
5: barn, like Shannon, but we also, um, we're quite multifaceted. Um, we generally, from early spring through uh, late fall, are booked with birthday parties every weekend, um, both days. Um, we have a, a large um, uh, 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 we have many many people who come for just a one-time only ride where they get to experience horseback riding a lesson a short trail uh, just you know something to do for an afternoon outing we can't take any of you know those being the general public um, we uh, have a huge summer camp that we will not be able to do. So as of now, um, I haven't really looked at it on paper other than knowing I've lost thousands and thousands, like tens of thousands, and um, we stand to lose far more as this goes on. We can only operate a tiny, tiny fraction of our lessons right
3: now.
2: Did either of you apply for any funding? Were you able to receive any funding?
3: Um I did apply. I actually went through my I had my accountant help me so I would be sure and hopefully get it, you know, make sure it was all done correctly. So um, I applied for the payroll protection program and was denied Um, and I was told it didn't apply to us. Both the accountant and uh, my personal banker tried to help me with that. And uh, we were denied. I also applied the first day it became available for the SBA economic injury disaster loan um, and have yet to hear anything. We did that the very first day it was available and, and, and have not received any information on that. Um, also applied for unemployment and have not received that.
2: So, Let me back up for a moment. Shannon, you said you were already denied the PPE?
3: Yes, that is correct.
2: And again, what was the reason?
3: So the bank told me that the reason that he was given is because um, we are not covered under that. He told me my employees were not because they were 1099. Um, And I thought the 1099 employees would be, but he said, uh, no, that they, that was not covered. And I said, well, what about for myself? And he said, no, you are not covered under this.
2: Did you verify that? Could you verify uh, that?
3: My accountant looked into it for me and the way that she read it is that it could help pay mortgage and such to keep the lights on and things like that. And so she's not understanding why I was denied. I'm an LLC. Okay. Um, and yes. And um, so both my accountant and banker have worked on it. She has uh, taught, emailed with my banker personally and they have not had any luck thus far.
5: Lynn, what about you? Um, basically, once again, a very similar story. I applied for the disaster relief the day it opened. Um, I received a few very vague emails regarding that. Uh, nothing, certainly nothing confirming <laughs> that I'm receiving it. Um, uh, I have applied for unemployment and been denied, although they are supposed to be offering unemployment to um, self-employed people. My accountant, is helping me work on the PPP. I applied initially very early for that. Was in queue at the bank the day that I received the email saying you could continue your application. Submit it was the day that the first stimulus program, the CARES package, ran out of money. Um, I'm continuing to try to push forth the application. It is supposed to be um, helping folks that are sole proprietors or LLCs such as ourselves, uh, but we're finding it, just the obstacles are so difficult to overcome. Okay. Um, you know, I have a Schedule C ready in hand. They the wording was such that you could submit your Schedule C, but again, you know, I mean, I have enlisted the help of the congressman, David Scott, by me and their office. There.
2: Now, just yesterday, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue announced that there would be disaster loans being available. Now, it's under for what they call agriculture producers, so that would. Does that eliminate you all? Yes.
5: Mm, yes, it will. My daughter and I were just talking about that. That we, we won't be able to get the uh, type of farm subsidies that you've heard about, you know, even in pre-pandemic years where farmers need help with their crops and so on and so forth. We're in a really unique position as small business owners because we you know, have to largely, if not completely, shutter our doors, but we still have to feed our stock.
3: So unlike other companies that, you know, other small businesses who also are hurt during this time, they were able to shut their doors, turn off their lights and not mm-hmm. pay their employees. We still have to pay our employees happen to have four yeah, yeah. legs mm-hmm. and we still have yeah. to pay pay to feed them three times a day, pay for them to have pedicures every 5 weeks and mm-hmm. you know, so we veterinary medicine, we still have a, a large overhead even though we've had to shut our doors.
2: So what's the conversation been like with folks in your industry? I imagine you all are having the same conversation.
3: The people that I have spoke with, um, some are shutting their doors completely, planning to not reopen um, just because this has taken such a toll on them. Some are trying to sell equipment, but again, nobody's really buying equipment um, because no one can use it. Um, and that that's the experience I've had.
2: What, what are they going to do with the horses?
3: um, they're either selling their horses. I actually was on the phone yesterday. A couple people called me wanting to give their horses away. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's a sad situation because when that starts happening, they end up in bad homes. And, um, so I told them, please don't do that. And, um, I would try to help them find a, a good home for their animals.
2: How many horses do you have, Shannon?
3: Um, we have 17 on the property here and I own 13 of those.
2: Lynn, what about you? How many horses do you all have?
3: We have
5: 33 horses on the property, a large amount. Um, 10 of them are boarders, which is wonderful, because that means there's a set fee, rent, if you will, coming in every month. Um, so I can at least count on that. Um, that you know, helps with the general feed bill. Uh, those are the folks who own the horses and pay to keep them here. But all the rest of them are ours, and... Um, I mean, they're all under my care either way. You know, they all need the feeding, the vetting, everything that Shannon's saying, you know, the constant care and work. They're the kind of innocent victims in all this, if you will.
2: Lynn and Shannon, are you all open for business now? Have you made that decision?
5: Yes and no for myself. Um, We have just stringent, stringent guidelines and sanitation rules. Um, Basically, I would say I'm operating at maybe... A 10th of my full capacity on any given week on uh, you know the nicer seasons of the year all except for the worst winter months it's nothing for us to have probably close to a hundred people come through here on just a weekend between the group lessons the private lessons the birthday parties and our one-time only riders Um, and we you know run it with our wonderful young women helpers who are you know incredible incredible kids growing up in this and now you know i'll be lucky to, to have you know three four people a day but but that is my decision that's i shouldn't say lucky to have i mean i'm choosing to operate at an absolute you know tiny tiny fraction because I, I do not want to contribute to spreading this virus you know the, the state that we have been issued no guidelines whatsoever, and that was one of my initial complaints. And in hope of reaching out to the press, um, we've been completely lost out of the narrative in any directive guidelines as to what we can do, how to stay open, you know, how we should be operating. So we've had to set the rules ourselves. So for us, it's just tiny, tiny, tiny groups of two to three people at the most. Time in between, you know, strict social distancing. I require everyone to wear masks, and we we really, really lock this place down tight.
3: And I would uh, say we're basically the same. Um, I When this all began, um, we immediately shut down because um, obviously we want to do the right thing. Even though we weren't told that our business had to shut down, we wanted to do the right thing. And so we did. And I contacted um, who would be enforcing it. And that I figured would be our local sheriff's office. So I contacted our local sheriff and spoke with her directly actually on the phone and said, what am I? what are the rules for us? And she honestly didn't know. Um, She contacted people above her who actually also did not know how the rules applied to um, a horseback riding facility. So we have basically since March 16th, been pretty much closed. Um, We did start back um, just this week to those, uh, to a very small group of students that own their own horses. Um, And they're coming in one at a time um we, so that we have no more than two people in the barn at any given time. And um, you know, so we're trying to maintain the same as Lynn's strict social distancing rules. So again, like Lynn said, we don't contribute to spreading this disease any more than it already has.
2: Well, did either of you reach out to Georgia's Department of Agriculture for any guidance? Did they yes. have any what they say? Yes.
3: Yes, they, they they
5: offered nothing. It was really quite comical. Um, I talked to several people, and she basically directed me to you know CDC website. Like, uh, uh, okay, I, I think I know these general rules, like everyone else in the world does now. So they literally, literally were no help.
2: Well, and the other issue is too, because we've learned of you know COVID nineteen cases in animals. Obviously, the the tiger in the Bronx Zoo and. I read online, although it was not confirmed, that perhaps there was a domestic cat that had also um, contracted the virus. Um, in in your world, with the horses, do what? What do we know about this virus in and, and the horses? Any anything or
3: we don't really know anything about that. And I I think as probably with Lynn as well, why we're just trying to be so careful because there's so many unknowns. And so when people have come onto my farm, they have to step into a bleach. Um, A little bucket where there's bleach so that their feet are sanitized Then they go directly to the bathroom and wash their hands and they're only allowed to touch things that belong to them and their horse for the day and we're not doing any sharing of horses or sharing of tack because we don't know the ramifications Mm -hmm. of all of this with animals Um, and obviously we don't want to spread it to amongst the, the humans on the property. Either. And and going back to the Georgia Department of Agriculture, I contacted our local inspector who I get inspected by um, each year. And she said, We've been given no direction. We've not been told anything. Um, She said, So I can't tell you what to do or not to do.
2: Well, Lynn and Shannon, as we wrap up, how long do you think you all can sustain? I mean, or do you have any idea if it's your regular? you know flow of folks coming in if that's going to pick back up basically how long do you think y'all can can stay open
5: um it's for me it's not a question of um whether they'll come back everyone wants to come back I'm fielding calls constantly everyone if I gave the go-ahead I I hate to say but I probably have those same hundred people in and out of here all weekend but I, I won't do that I mean I ethically I, I absolutely will not go that route it's just not the right thing to do I must have turned away 10 different family groups just last weekend alone and I tell them you know please understand you know I hate doing this call me end of May perhaps things will be a little bit better but at this point for myself you know we're, we're keeping our trickle going and we're going to keep going one way or another I've 20 years building this place out of absolutely nothing, and I, I'm not gonna go down
3: with the ship, so to speak.
2: Shannon, I'll give you the last word.
3: We also are doing just about a quarter of our normal uh, students, so that's about a quarter of our normal income. We are able to stay afloat at this time. Um, I no longer will complain when we have rainy days and aren't able to teach as I did in the past, because now I understand it's rained for two months now, basically. Um, So I'm just thankful we, you know, we have clients that are standing behind us are willing to come back as soon as we open the doors, but it's going to be a while before we feel comfortable enough to open completely.
2: Shannon Thompson, owner and instructor at Peace of Heaven Farm in Jackson County, Georgia, Lynn Marks, owner of the Ellenwood Equestrian Center. We were talking about COVID-19 pandemic and the effects it's having on Georgia's equine industry. Thank you both for taking the time to share your stories and best of luck to you all. And I'm sorry that the horses are bored. If they want a public radio host to come out there and ride, uh, full mask and gloves, I'd be happy to do it.
5: Uh, we'd love to have you.
2: Don't know if that <laughs> would satisfy their boredom, but you know. <laughs> Well, thank you for taking the time to
3: share this. All right, you all stay safe. Thank you so
2: much for having us on. You're welcome. Y'all stay safe. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here's something that's going to be different as we enter this segment. I'm going to ask my producer, Grace Walker, to recite the 4-H pledge. Grace, do you remember? I pledge
6: my head to clearer thinking, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to greater service, and my health to better living, and my club, my community, my country, and my world.
2: Now, did you look that up, or you still remember that from your 4-H days?
6: <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yes, as you heard from Grace. Thank you so much, for Grace, for that. Head, heart, hands, and health. These four words are the foundations of the 4-H club. A youth development organization actually it dates back... To the late 1890s, it's now grown to include a network of more than 100 public universities across the U.S. And if you're not familiar with 4-H activities, well, keep listening. Some of the organization's events include competing in livestock, judging competitions to forestry field days and even STEM activities. But as with everything else in our lives, the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted a lot of these extracurricular activities. And while Georgia schools remain closed for in-person learning, resources for youth development are even more important than ever. Take a listen to this. And so, you
6: know, in the more immediate need, thinking about like this summer, you know, are there ways, keeping in mind the uncertainty of can we actually get together in person sort of thing? But you know, is there a way to support some summer learning programs and bridge programs over the summer to help get kids get caught up and can that not just fall on the school system there in the metro area but not so much in the rural areas Mm -hmm. you know can we utilize like summer programs how do we align summer support programs really in line with what the school needs out in the rural area 4-h could be a huge supplement Mm -hmm. to what the schools are trying to do and so it's going to take more than just telling school systems you need to ramp up and ramp up quickly. It's gonna take you know, community investment, uh, community organization support, private public dollars. Mm-hmm. But the, the trick is really figuring out what are those most needed critical
2: things That was Dr. Dana Rickman, Vice President at the Georgia Partnership for Excellence in Education. about the challenges the pandemic has presented for schools, particularly in rural school districts, you heard her mention the 4-H program. Well, how is that organization adapting with all of this? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Arch D. Smith. He's Georgia's 4-H leader. And Mr. Smith, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh,
2: What do you make of my producer, Grace, being able to recite the 4-H pledge there?
4: Well, I'll I'll give her about a 95. I think she might have left out one one or two words. But other than that, she did a great job. And uh, if you're not saying it every day, it's easy to forget. But... uh... But she did wonderful.
2: Yes, she did. Now, for a lot of our listeners, and including myself, you know, growing up when I thought of the 4-H club, I was thinking, oh, that's mostly for, you know, the youth in rural parts of of the state or, you know, mostly dealt with agricultural uh, initiatives and activities. But you all have evolved. You've changed over the years because you include not just rural but also urban uh, areas as well.
4: Yes, Rose, and I I think, you know, you're right. The Georgia 4-H program is a 4-H program across the country. Uh, started as a rural uh, program to help young uh, boys and girls learn, you know, to improve the quality of life on their uh, family farms, actually. Uh, But as time has evolved, uh, you know, 4-H is, I think, one of the things that we learned, and I I grew up on a farm, I was involved in 4-H, and I went there to, I always tell people, I I joined 4-H to show hogs, but I think the things I remember most about 4-H are the things that I've benefited from as an adult and throughout my life, were well, the connections with people, mm-hmm. the communication skills, uh, the leadership skills, uh, the opportunity to network with people across the state and across the country for that matter, <clears throat> and just the, the ability to know how to work with people and, and build consensus and move forward and, and make progress. We are involved in so many different things Uh, while we still have kids showing livestock and doing livestock judging, as you mentioned. So many of our kids today are involved in public speaking, the performing Mm -hmm. arts, uh, STEM-related activities, and a lot of different science and uh, social science uh, programs that help children develop leadership skills, communication skills, and develop character
2: and it sounds like the 4-H activities are so important in terms of being, uh, you know, an asset for, for schools, you know, whether it's public or a private. But it gives kids a, an opportunity to be involved in these activities that might correlate with what they're doing inside the classroom.
4: Exactly. In Georgia, we're very fortunate that in our county extension uh, faculty and staff are able to go into many school systems, uh, particularly at the fifth and sixth grade level and introduce the 4-H program. And what we hope happens there is that uh, those young people see an opportunity to participate beyond the classroom and in many of the activities that we have. And I think what happens is a child learns maybe more about science in the natural environment uh, or showing an animal or uh, doing a project than they might necessarily pick up in the classroom. And so a lot of times what we're doing is supplementing what's going on in the classroom. Mm Uh, the other thing is that we do in Georgia that is not unique around the country, but uh, certainly we, we like to think we're one of the best in the country at it. Is that we offer a science-based environmental education program. In the previous school year, uh, unfortunately, not this school year, but in the previous school year, over 43,000 uh, school students from across, most of them from Georgia, some from surrounding states, uh, visited one of our 4-H facilities across the state and. Uh, spent uh, either a day or two or three days um, at the facility learning about science and the out of doors. And uh, that, that has been a great asset uh, to our program and as well as uh, introducing science in the natural environment to so many kids that don't have that opportunity. When you think about urban children, as, uh, particularly uh, children that grow up in the metropolitan Atlanta area or other metropolitan states or uh, areas of our state, most of those kids that participate in the 4-H environmental education program during the school year actually come from the metropolitan areas of our state. Mm. So uh, we we do a lot in rural areas, but we are also servicing uh, a lot of kids in in the metropolitan areas, not only with the environmental education program, but with the more traditional 4-H program that we offer.
2: So Mr. Smith, let me ask you this. As of right now, are many of those activities and events that were scheduled to take place for the 4-H members, has it just been halted? Or have you suspended it or has it been canceled?
4: Well, uh, Rose, most everything that we had scheduled from about mid-March uh, through June has been canceled. Some activities and programs have been postponed, particularly at the, the state and district or regional level. And so those events, uh, we still have some small hope that we might have some summer camping activities later in July. We're not extremely optimistic, but um, we will wait and see what the guidance is from the CDC, uh, the state of Georgia, and of course from, you know, the University of Georgia, who is our parent institution. And if we feel like it's safe, uh, we'll we'll try to have some summer camping activities in July, but if we don't feel like it's safe, we won't. I think one of the things that our uh, county staff certainly have done a tremendous job uh, is is trying to figure out a way to continue to connect with young people at the local level mm-hmm. and provide those um, opportunities through uh, zoom meetings. Uh, we've developed some uh, virtual programs both at the state level as well as at the county level. Uh, I just read uh, an article this morning uh, where our science specialists uh, at state level is working with uh, NASA and some other organizations to, to provide some uh, virtual programming online for young people as it relates to STEM. I think one of the things that has happened uh, that uh, during this pandemic uh, for 4-H is that our people, uh, and when I say our people, our, our leaders, our, our paid staff across the state, have been very creative in trying to find ways to continue to connect to children because um, so many children uh, across this state still need what we have to offer uh, to supplement what they're doing in their classroom, uh, whether, and you mentioned both uh, public and private schools, I'd I'd like to add homeschool to that Mm too. Sure. Because there are a lot of children that are involved in 4-H who come from homeschool families and um, so, we we continue to find new ways to um, deliver programming during this time. I think as a result of it, you know, we'll learn to do some things better, but nothing beats the face-to-face um, interaction that young people have with uh, one another as they uh, grow and, and develop into young adults.
2: Speaking of young adults, um, we want to also give a little shout out to a 10-year-old in Hancock County, Who used her 4-H project achievement skills to sew PPE masks for other children?
4: Well, I I saw that article too, and uh, I was real pleased to see that. Well, I know we've had a number of children uh, uh, and who have done similar things across the state and across the country, for that matter. But I think it just one of the things that you know we talk about four things that we try to help children achieve or learn, and and their mastery, independence. belonging and generosity and that last one generosity is what i think we've seen in so many cases of young people trying to help um in in any way to uh, ease the um pain or the um or, or make make it easier for people to to go out into public you know and this young lady in hancock county uh, putting together a mask um i know a bunch of uh, several 4-H'ers in, uh, down in Appling County, Baxley, Georgia, um, they had their show pigs, and they uh, gave those pigs to, to be processed, and that uh, pork meat was put into the local food bank uh, to give to um, others. So uh, I think at the end of the day, as, as children participate in 4-H and become young adults, uh, generosity is something that we hope they learn and that they can – uh, give back throughout their lifetime.
2: The voice you hear is Arch D. Smith. He's the leader of the state's 4 H program. And we're talking about how Georgia's 4 H program is adapting and still trying to provide resources and skills to Georgia youth. You know, Mr. Smith, like any other entity or organization, we got to talk about funding during this time. You know, a while back, the Georgia's 4 H program faced some financial cuts. Um, from the University System of Georgia, because folks may not know that's where a majority of your funding comes from, correct?
4: Correct. Uh, The 4-H program is delivered by the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences at the University of Georgia. We're part of the Cooperative Extension Service, which is the service uh, branch or public service outreach arm of the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences. And about 40% of our funding comes from uh, state funds. Uh, We get... uh, we call cooperative extension because we also get funding from, uh, County governments and, and local school boards, as well as the, the federal government puts in some funding. And then, uh, in 4 uh, a big portion of our funding, uh, particularly at the state level comes from, um, the operation of our 4-H centers, those, um, uh, five, six locations that we have across the state. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, right now, while we've not taken a hit on public funding, uh, in this fiscal year, uh, you know, that's likely to happen. Or we know that's uh, reality for FY 21. And, um, you know, we'll have to make some difficult decisions about, uh, where we, um, cut back and, 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 and maybe, uh, affect uh, impact some of our delivery. Um, at our four centers, you know, most of the work that we do there is uh, with school systems and through uh, many of our competitions and summer camping programs and uh, uh, you know those things have certainly been uh, dramatically impacted in in this fiscal year uh, over the last uh, couple of months now and what we know may and the remainder of may and june uh, will likely not uh, we won't see any uh, young people on our facilities so That's going to have a tremendous uh, impact on our bottom line at the end of the year.
2: How concerning is it for you that 4-H then may not be a top priority, you know, when it comes to the state in general, because there are going to be a lot of budget cuts. Governor Kemp had already asked, you know, pretty much every department to look at its budget and and trim. Are you concerned that that you all might um, lose a, a big percentage or may not get funding at all?
4: We, we know there's going to be a cut let me put it that way and uh we're a resilient uh group of people and uh you know i uh i certainly hope and uh that the the state will continue to fund uh, uh well the university system as well as uh, uh the college of agriculture environmental sciences and the programs that we offer not only you know, in extension which 4-h is a part of but our research and and teaching components but uh, you know we utilize a lot of volunteers in Georgia for uh, H2. Uh, I think last year it was over 5,000 adults that volunteered with our program. If if there are cut, cuts to our personnel, uh, certainly we will try to to ramp up and use utilize more volunteers. And we've been doing that for a number of years now uh, in developing more training. Also, you know, making sure that uh, volunteers um, have background checks and that they're uh, People are are trained to work with young people, which is extremely important to us. So, you know, budget cuts are inevitable and and I think we all understand that. Um, I think uh, at the end of the day, it's it's, um, how you look at the resources you have in front of you and how you make the most of those and and continue to try to deliver a quality program to help young people. Regardless of what happens, Young people are still going to need programs like 4-H and and other youth-serving organizations, whereas Scouting, FFA, or Boys and Girls Clubs, those programs are still going to be needed to help young people, um, and uh, just like extracurricular activities at school are needed. And so um, I I think we'll, yeah, we're going to probably look different and have to work a little bit differently, but um, I think we'll still be there when all is said and done. Uh, And I I say that because I won't be making that decision by myself and a lot of other people will have input into that. And um, we'll only have summer camp if we feel like we can have a a camping program that is safe for young people. And I hope we can, but um, you know, um, again, uh, we're not gonna err on the side of not being safe.
2: Head, heart, hands, and health. Those are the four H's and four H. Arch D. Smith is Georgia's leader. 4-H program, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you all.
4: Thank you, Rose. Stay safe. You too.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need.